This is, as I said, my last lecture for this course, and I'm entitling uh, this lecture uh, The Democratization of Finance. Uh, I wanted to save this to the end because uh, it's really about uh, looking at the broad purpose of, of our financial markets and our financial institutions. Um, and ultimately, the, there's only one purpose uh, to all of this, and that's human welfare. Uh, it's people. And this should be obvious, but uh, let's not forget that uh, corporations exist only for the benefit of people. Normally, we say for their owners, but we could also add other stakeholders. But it's people, individual people that matter, and only, uh, unless you want to add animals. <laughs> so, but uh, we have nonprofits that are uh, aimed at animal welfare as well, so include them. Um, so uh, uh, I've made it a theme of my recent books that uh, finance is a powerful tool for improving human welfare. Um, and uh, in my uh, latest two books, I emphasize what I call the democratization of finance. Maybe I should uh, write this down because it's a term that I like to use. Um, democratization of finance. Uh, or you could say, for short, financial democracy. But I mean something a little different. Uh, in the 1930s, people talked about financial democracy as um, the sharehold shareholders voting for the uh, direction of a corporation. I don't mean it by that. By democratization of finance, I mean bringing it to the people. Uh, so that, that uh, demos. <laughs> uh, there's been a long trend towards uh, democratization of finance that goes back centuries, and that is uh, it originally financial techniques were were of, of of value only to the very rich or the very sophisticated. Uh, um, in um, 1780, the president of Harvard College had his paycheck – I think it was President Lamont – indexed to inflation. <laughs> uh, I've been trying to figure out if anyone else in the world had ever had a, a CPI indexed labor contract, uh, and I, I've not been able to discover any other example. Uh, that was 1780. So there was one person in the world who had an inflation-indexed uh, 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 employment contract. And funny, who was it? It was the president of Harvard, <laughs> so not the random <laughs> person. Um, but as time goes by, we have more and more um, spread of these concepts. And uh, so I make it as a mission in, uh, in two of my books, New Financial Order, uh, which is on reserve, and my new book, which I'll write here, Subprime solution, uh, which is not on reserve because I haven't finished it yet, <laughs> but it will be out, and uh, it will be sometime this summer. It will be available in bookstores, uh, and apparently, uh, well, uh, so the theme is that uh, uh, in both these books is that um, a lot of our problems can be solved by um, by. Continuing this trend toward uh, democratization of finance, so uh, we have problems with inequality, uh, economic inequality, uh, and this is, I think, uh, probably the most important issue facing advanced countries today, and that is that uh, we are not sharing income equally. There are a remarkable number of poor people uh, and a small, very elite group who are making hundreds of millions of dollars. And in most countries of the world, inequality is getting worse. This applies both to the advanced countries, like the United States, and to the emerging countries, like China and India. Uh, 
is not altogether bad because part of the reason inequality is getting worse is that there are suddenly getting rich people. <laughs> and uh, if, uh, if everyone's getting better off, you could say, what's the problem? Uh, in many uh, ways, that is the, uh, the right answer. But I think that we can't tolerate um, excessive inequality. The, the beauty of it is that the very same capitalism that has been generating inequality has solutions for it. Uh, and many of our venerable economic institutions that we already have are working against inequality. So uh, I'll mention, just for example, life insurance. That helps alleviate inequality by eliminating one important cause of inequality. A lot of poor people traditionally are people who've lost a families that have lost one of the two parents, uh, either the mother or the father. And of course, that puts the family in stress because they have just lost half of their uh, adults. Uh, if you have life insurance, that solves that. Um, another source of inequality is solved by health insurance. An important cause of Inequality is somebody gets sick, uh, and um, so they, they are unable to earn an income, and they end up uh, in disastrous economic situation. Another one is disability insurance. Okay, disability insurance protects you against something like uh, an accident that uh, causes you to become unable to hold a job. And uh, that tends to be a lifetime thing. Disability insurance is a lifetime insurance contract. You pay for it while you're healthy. If you become disabled, you get uh, support for the rest of your life. So these are just some examples of how inequality is already being dealt with through risk management institutions and why uh, a finance I always lump insurance, and these are all insurance, but I lump that in with finance as risk management and why they're so important. Um, but uh, we still see inequality getting worse. And so uh, I think that is a, a challenge toward improving our risk management institutions. The subprime crisis that we're in now is really substantially due to failures of our risk management institutions. Uh, notably, well, we have had a failure to provide institutions to help people to diversify their own household portfolios. So people who um, uh, bought a house would have been in a highly leveraged position uh, and uh, vulnerable to risks of changes in home prices and to other risks. So. Um, uh, so we need to go a lot further. Now, part of, uh, of this theme of democratization of finance is that uh, we have to pay respect to behavioral finance. Uh, and that's because people don't, uh, especially the less educated or less capable people, don't always make optimal use of financial instruments. Uh, like, uh, for example, insurance. Uh, and so uh, if people don't make use of, of risk management contracts, then uh, we have a problem. So what we have to do going forward in the future is design our risk management contracts to work better for real people. All right, And so that requires uh, what they call uh, in the engineering department Human factors engineering. But I'll add financial to this. <laughs> financial engineering is a term sometimes used in a disparaging term for people who invent things that are just a bit too complicated. But usually the word financial engineering is used approvingly to refer to people's efforts to make finance work. Uh, even better than before. 
uh, to make progress in our financial institution. So one of the themes of my of the of this book and this book is that uh, uh, we have a lot of progress to be made, and but I think it has to be taking account of our better uh, our better financial institutions, uh, knowledge of financial theory and behavior. So what I wanted to talk about, actually, uh, th this lecture I have several parts. I wanted to talk first of about um, about social insurance, which is not normally covered in a finance course, but it seems to me so relevant that I want to talk about it. Social insurance refers to government programs uh, that insure people against risk. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about the extremely important risk management programs that the government has instituted. Uh, I'm going to talk especially about bankruptcy and bailouts because they're relevant right now, particularly relevant right now with the subprime crisis. Um, and then I wanted to conclude this lecture with uh, uh, some thoughts about financial careers and about morality. Um, I, wanted to, I talked about that in the first lecture. Maybe I should have talked more consistently about it, but um, young people are thinking about careers. and. I think that ultimately uh, I give you credit for wondering about the moral purpose of different careers. Uh, I think finance has a somewhat tarnished reputation, uh, but I think that's really mis uh, undeserved. Uh, um, I guess people in finance get into controversial positions. Uh, more so than people who are in other <laughs> occupations that don't put them in these moral dilemmas. Uh, and sometimes they can behave badly. Uh, but uh, I don't actually claim to have answers. You should take a philosophy course. <laughs> I won't give you answers to all these ethical questions. But what I want to do is at least uh, raise them and uh, think a little bit about. Uh, how they relate to this course. Okay, so the first principle of uh, of um, I want to come back now to what I said I would talk about, namely the role of the government in risk management. Uh, uh, and I think it would be a mistake to ignore this because uh, David Moss, who is actually uh, uh, got his Ph.D. in history. From Yale, and I talked to him when he was still here. He wrote a book, uh, When All Else Fails. And it was a history of risk management in the U.S. Uh, this is about ten years ago, this book came, or eight years, I forget exactly, sometime in the last decade. Um, and he makes the argument that really every government, he, he's he focuses on the U.S., but every government has a risk management role, and much of what governments do is to uh, is to do risk management. Uh, especially modern governments, that wasn't maybe true so much uh, before uh, before the uh, end of the 19th century, but governments have gotten in increasingly in uh, into risk management. The first um, uh, example I would give is the Progressive income tax. Or graduated uh, graduated income tax, as it was called by Adam Smith uh, in 1776 in his book, uh, The Wealth of Nations. He said that maybe we should have a tax on incomes, and the tax on incomes should be graduated so that people with higher incomes pay a higher fraction of their income, and that would help reduce inequality. Um, but Smith, although he raised it uh, in that famous book in 1776, he then quickly dismissed it as unworkable, because he said if we had an income tax, it would be, quote, a tax on conscience, meaning that only the honest people would pay it because it was impossible to verify anyone's income. Uh, income is too complicated to measure. Uh, 
so uh, maybe he was right. The first income tax uh, was either uh, the UK or Holland um, around uh, at the end of the 18th century. Uh, they had small income taxes, and they were pro they were progressive, uh, but it, they were a beginning. The U.S. Um, experimented with an income tax in the 1860s uh, and abandoned it. The uh, original experiments were all um, only marginally successful, but the U.S. finally got an income tax in 1913 uh, and at a very low level. But uh, this is the U.S. Uh, it ultimately became very important. And it, 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 uh, after uh, World War II, the top marginal tax bracket rose above 90 percent. So it became a very significant redistributor of income. And ultimately, it's gone way back down. Now we've reversed it. Uh, but ultimately, it, it's a risk management device. What it means is that uh, if uh, if you do very poorly, you don't pay any taxes and you get benefits. Uh, and um, uh, we also, I might add to it, we have a progressive income tax that finances education for everyone, universal education, and other social services, and public goods. Okay, so. Uh, so th that is a risk management device, and it, it works despite limitations of human uh, behavior, because um, it's automatic. <laughs> it's imposed on you, so nobody can forget about it. Uh, it becomes a universal risk management device. In some sense, it's the most important risk management device of all, because it deals at the very low level. Uh, starting in around the uh, uh, well. I guess you could go back to Milton Friedman, who was a conservative economist, uh, who started advocating a negative income tax in the 1940s. But he actually, um, in his 1963 book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom, he advocated it more strongly. That's the um, usual source that we should have a negative tax on low income people. To bring their income up to a, uh, a good substantial level. So uh, that was the negative income tax. Uh, and it sounded like a very uh, negative tax on low income. It sounded like a very um, controversial, uh, crazy idea when he launched it. But crazy ideas have a way of eventually becoming standard. Uh, and the United States uh, adopted, and it is now fairly significant, something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, which is a negative income tax for low-income families. So uh, it, it emerged from thinking. So the EITC, Earned Income Tax Credit. If you are a family with children. With income very low, uh, like under ten thousand, you'll get a substantial uh, negative tax, several thousand dollars, uh, and that is risk management. It means that anybody whose income falls below uh, very low is—it's uh, kind of like an income insurance scheme run by the government. Um, the concern about all of these schemes, however, is moral hazard. Uh, and uh, if you have an earned income tax credit, uh, it, it's kind of designed around moral hazard. Uh, instead of having welfare, uh, welfare is a, uh, is a less – that's just a gift to someone who doesn't have any job at all, who has no income. Then uh, that uh, moral ha welfare uh, tends to lead to a moral hazard problem. If the government says, if you don't have a job, we'll support you, that encourages people to say, okay, I don't have a job. Uh, but the earned income tax credit is different because it, it's a negative tax rate on your income. So you have to have income in order to get anything. So you have to get a job to get EITC. 
And the more you earn, the more EITC, up to a limit, for low levels of income, the more uh, negative tax you get. So uh, it's see, the thing that we're do what we're doing as time goes by is we're getting a clearer picture of how to uh, design risk management contacts, contracts for the general public. Uh, so uh, the EITC was invented in the 70s. It was in the U.S. It was sponsored by Senator Russell Long, and it is now being copied around the world. Although I guess there were earlier antecedents, but the U.S. was the first country to do uh, EITC. Uh, the other, I wanted just to remind you of the different kinds of risk management that the government offers, um, and one important. Uh, ask one important part of it is social security. Uh, I want to go back to the original social security system, uh, and it was in Germany that under Otto von Bismarck that the first social security systems uh, were developed, uh, and it was considered a highly radical idea in the uh, 1880s. When um, I'll put this down in German in case some of you um, can, can understand this. Uh, 1883, Krankenversicherung. <laughs> That's one word, but I've run out of room. Health insurance was founded nationally in Germany, it was a government mandatory program. Everybody in Germany had to contribute to health insurance. Uh, I'll write this over. German words are very long. <laughs> they run them together. I ran out of room to write Krankenversicherung. <laughs> um, in um, uh, 1884, Unfallversicherung. Unfall means accident, like a fall. Versicherung means insurance. The government created an accident, referring to workplace accident insurance. Uh, and it was uh, the German government had it, uh, it was an arrangement that made it mandatory for employers to buy insurance against injuries to people who work there. Uh, and then three, um, uh, they had in 1889 Altersversicherung. <laughs> this isn't supposed to be a German lesson. <laughs> I can get it right, write it right. I, but I like to put it this way because it suggests its origin. This was old age insurance. Alter means old. Uh, and so. Um, Old age insurance was generated for the whole country of Germany. And at this point in 1889, Germany was the only country to have a social insurance program. So, around uh, shortly after the turn of the century, Lloyd George, who was Prime Minister of the UK, traveled to Germany and uh, was looked at their system and was very much impressed and thought, he said, one thing I noticed about Germany, there are no beggars. Normally in London, you couldn't walk down the street without seeing somebody who was sitting there holding out a tin cup who had no legs or, <laughs> or, uh, or mothers with children who were orphans. And, uh, uh, and he said, it's gone in Germany. So he was, became convinced that UK should follow the lead. This was copied over the whole world, and it's virtually everywhere now. I mean, some less developed countries haven't gotten there yet, but this is uh, uh, where they're going. Uh, and uh, I wanted to quote Gustav Schmoller, who was a German economist in the 1880s. Uh, Schmoller, uh, in the early 20th century, he wrote some memoirs uh, and, uh, about his life and the life of other economists in Germany. And he said, The triumph of insurance in every imaginable area, era, I'm sorry, area was one of the centuries, meaning the 19th century's, great advances in social progress. It was an entirely logical development 
that insurance spread from the upper classes to the lower classes, that it had to attempt as far as possible to eliminate poverty, and that the older charitable relief funds for the workers were more and more constructed on the sound principle of insurance. The problem with charity is that it tends to be whimsical and capricious. If you're relying on charity to resolve uh, problems of poverty, it's going to be applied very unevenly. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it would be salient uh, examples of poverty, like if a child is uh, suddenly stricken with some unusual illness and it gets written up in the newspapers, then generous contributions will become pouring into that child. But other children who are not uh, so blessed uh, get nothing. Um, in the United States, uh, we were about the last country to uh, jump onto the bandwagon begun in Germany. Uh, it's partly, I guess, because the U.S. is more free enterprise uh, in its orientation. Maybe it doesn't like to adopt ideas from Europe. Uh, it wasn't until the Great Depression that the U.S. adopted uh, Alters Versicherung. We still haven't adopted Kranken for Zikarung. <laughs> we still don't have a national health insurance. We have Medicare and Medicaid, but they don't apply to everyone. So we have about 40 million uninsured with Americans with no health insurance. So we're still not there yet. Uh, maybe we'll get there. Um, but I wanted to talk about some of the uh, important uh, successes that. Uh, uh, so the social security system in the U.S. is our copy of the German system. Uh, and uh, social security started in 1935, so that was about 50 years after the Germans <laughs> invented it. Uh, and it's remarkable how similar the idea that we've uh, done is. And it, and it stays. We really have something like the 1889 German system in place today. What it, what it did is it created a system of contributions um, to this. Right now, uh, when you get a job, you have to pay 6.2 percent. Uh, uh, that's on your pay stub. 6.2 percent is taken out as your contribution to Social Security, uh, and then your employer uh, pays another 6.2. So 12.4 percent of your income goes to Social Security. And those are thought of as contributions to an insurance scheme. For your, uh, it has three components. It's called OASD, actually. OA stands for old age. A, uh, uh, S stands for survivors. And DI stands for disability insurance. Well, they're all insurance. So you are ma it's mandatory. You are paying a lot into this system. You're paying the fact that your employer pays half of it is perhaps misleading. So it's really like 12 percent of your income is forced to go into an insurance scheme. That's big. Now th there's a cutoff though. A after you reach, I think it's around 95,000, uh, you don't have to pay anymore. But for most people, it's 12 percent of their income is going to Social Security. And what do they get for it? They get a pension when they're old, and it's guaranteed for the rest of your life. And these other things, a lot of people don't even know about. You don't even know that you've got this. Survivor's insurance is a life insurance program. This was actually added in 1939 to, with amendments. I guess maybe disability was added at that time, too. What it means is, if you are uh, under a certain age, I think it's 18, if your parents die, the government will Give, well, uh, or one of your parents dies, the government will pay money to the family to support you. It's life insurance offered by the government. And why did the government get into this? Well, the problem was it's behavioral finance again. That uh, while wealthy people uh, tended to get life insurance, the general mass of people were not uh, because of some behavioral problem. They just didn't see the value of it. Didn't understand it. Disability insurance means that if, you're f if you work and you have an accident and then you can no longer work, you start collecting Social Security. 
Normally, you don't get uh, social the old age until the age of 62 or 65, um, but uh, disability you can get at any age if you become disabled. You know, it's funny that I think a lot of people don't even know they have this. These institutions operate so quietly. Partly, the government they call this survivor's insurance when they created it in 1939. I was wondering, why didn't they call it life insurance? That's what it is. Life insurance is something that pays the survivors of a family member who dies. I think they didn't want to call it life insurance because they didn't want to uh, threaten the industry. There's a whole life insurance industry. The government was going in a big way to create a f product which is mandatory. They didn't want to upset the life insurance, so they called it something different. And you can get a life insurance salesman who will sell you life insurance and not even mention that you've got a policy already, whether you want it or not. Uh, they would just be offering something to add to that. Uh, what what uh, also they did starting in the 1930s, um, it was um, uh, was originally called uh, aid to dependent children, but they changed it to aid to families with dependent children. And that was a separate program beyond these. The parents didn't have to be uh, didn't have to be disabled and uh, or old or anything like that to get this. Um, uh, and so that started in 1935. That's our welfare system. It was uh, for parents that couldn't earn enough money. You know, if you have a mother, a single mother with no husband, uh, and the husband uh, or the husband just can't make any money. Uh, she would get uh, aid uh, for herself and the children. Um, that, however, was abolished in 1996 uh, because of moral hazard. The, uh, the aid to families with dependent children was created in 1935 with little uh, attention to the amount of moral hazard it might eventually create. Uh, and so, uh, we th there grew an increasing problem of welfare dependency. Uh, you would have families that had lived on uh, AFDC their whole lives and their grandparents' <laughs> lives and their grandparents' lives, uh, and so uh, public opinion turned against that. And so it was in 1996, uh, and we had a uh, Welfare Reform Act uh, that abolished AFDC. Um, it, it was a Republican bill, uh, but it was signed by the Democratic President Carter, uh, Clinton. So uh, that eliminated uh, federal – well, essentially, they ended the um, welfare program started in the Depression. Um, there, they uh, there still is some welfare, but there's a lifetime five-year limit on, on actual welfare. So after you've been collecting it for five years, you are disqualified. Um, and it denied welfare to immigrants who are not citizens. Uh, and it uh, limited uh, food stamps to unemployed childless adults. Uh, so it uh, uh, I think there's a there, as we move ahead, uh, uh, we're becoming increasingly aware of how to design uh, institutions around human glitches, and so the Welfare Reform Act. I don't know if it was the right uh, policy, but it was trying to eliminate a moral hazard problem. Um, so we have instead of we, we've replaced the aid to families with dependent children with a more generous EITC. And you see that it has very different uh, moral hazard implications. To get earned income tax credit, you've got to have a job, and it can't just be a token job because you, you don't. It's, it's as a you, the negative tax is as a function of your income. So I, I take this as signs of past progress that that will um, that will uh, continue in the future. Uh, so I wanted to talk about bankruptcy briefly here because. That is something that uh, I mentioned is a uh, very important risk management device. Uh, and it's of uh, relevance right now in time of financial crises. So uh, 
the United States did not have a uh, bankruptcy law at the federal level uh, generally until 1898. But during the 19th century, there were repeated financial crises that uh, led to temporary bankruptcy laws. What happened was like what we're seeing right now. There was some financial crisis, and it caused people to lose their jobs uh, for no fault of their own, and they couldn't pay their debts. Uh, and laws back then were often very harsh, and it would send people to debtor's prison. But uh, I think the enlightened view gradually developed. This is crazy. You know, some person is uh, is trying hard. <laughs> There's a big financial crisis. Makes bad investments. Uh, then it can't pay debts and we put this guy in jail? Uh, that's crazy. In fact, there should be some other, um, other method that, uh, that deals uh, better with bankruptcy. So, um, um, it was a, uh, there were a numerous bankruptcy laws, but uh, notable was the 1841 law, which for a temporary period gave, this is after a financial crisis, gave a fresh start. They said, Someone declaring bankruptcy can wipe out all debts and not go to jail, and uh, as long as they draw their wealth down to zero, they could have a fresh start and go back to life <laughs> normally. That kind of idea has gradually been, uh, and, and it's now, um, now it's uh, in part of our uh, general assumption about bankruptcies. Um, I mentioned that 1898 was the landmark bankruptcy law. This is the first time that we had bankruptcy enshrined as an institution that lasts all the time. It's not just during financial crisis. You can at any time declare bankruptcy as a way to protect yourself. Uh, and uh, there was another landmark. This was a landmark bankruptcy law. Uh, and there was another one in. 1978, uh, another landmark bankruptcy bill, which uh, made it even easier, much easier for people to, to declare bankruptcy. Uh, and as a result, especially after 1978, bankruptcies became very commonly used ways to manage extreme outcomes <coughs> in one's uh, finances. And in fact, recently, since 1978, uh, there's uh, typically over a million bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies, a year. Uh, it's a little-known fact that there are more bankruptcies than divorces. And you may wonder, well, how can that be? <laughs> I don't hear about bankruptcies. You hear about divorces all the time. Uh, I think the reason that you don't hear about bankruptcies is that nobody needs to tell you. You, know, you don't come across saying, to, hey, you know what, <laughs> you ask someone, what's new? Oh, I just declared bankruptcy. <laughs> They don't do that. <laughs> they, they don't do that about divorces either, but the problem with divorces is they can't cover it up. Everybody knows <laughs> you've gotten a divorce, so we hear a lot more about them. But bankruptcies are, are very important. The uh, other bill that, uh, that is very important is 2005, and that reverses some of the 1978 uh, bill. So. Uh, We've been pulling back. M maybe 1978 was too generous, but I just wanted to give you some uh, clue about uh, about what bankruptcy is. There, if you, there's three important kinds of bankruptcy, and they refer to chapters of the United States Code. There's Chapter Seven bankruptcy. You should know this because half of you are going to declare bankruptcy. <laughs> someday. <laughs> no, maybe not. We hope that you get an education in finance, and few of you will declare bankruptcy. But uh, some of you are going to be going through this. Uh, chapter 11 and chapter 13. So, just so you'll know uh, in advance, before you actually do this, um, chapter 7 is. Um, the um, liquidation form. And this is where uh, you say, this is it. This is the fresh start story. You give up everything you have to your creditors. The bankruptcy court will divide it up among, um, among the creditors, and then you have a fresh start. 
Uh, it used to be, in 1978, you could do this every six years. But as I remember, 2005 thought 1978 was too lenient, so they moved it to every eight years. Uh, so that's what you can do. Uh, if you are in big trouble, you've gotten in more debt than you can handle, you, what you have to do is go to a lawyer and file for bankruptcy. And uh, Chapter 7 is often the favorite thing because it gives you a fresh start. Uh, however, the 2005 law said that you can't do, as an individual, you can't do Chapter 7 unless your income is below the median for your state. So uh, I guess you have to forget Chapter 7. <laughs> I'm assuming that most of you will be making more than the median income for the state you live in. So cross Chapter 7, unless you are really in bad situation, uh, cross Chapter 7 off. Chapter 7 is for, uh, Chapter 11, uh, companies can also do Chapter 7. Chapter 11 is for companies. Uh, and it, it's a reorganization rather than liquid, liquidation. Uh, and for companies, it, it's, it's a system to help them get back on their feet. When, you, when a company files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, what they're saying is, hey, we can't pay. We're out of money. And we have all these people coming to us that we owe money to, and we don't know who to pay first. You know, we just don't have enough money. It, it becomes a disorderly process, uh, and so they go to the court for protection. And it, when a company runs out of money and it can't pay its bills, then that can destroy the company immediately because people who are delivering things to the company that they need will stop delivering them. They, they say, I hear you're bankrupt. You're not going to pay us, so we're going to stop delivering. And that can destroy the company. So the idea of Chapter 11 is to keep the company going so the court would impose some order and allow the company to continue in business and to hold off the creditors for now. And it, it's ultimately in the creditor's interest if, they c if the court does this because they're better off in getting their debts paid if the company is still making money. Chapter 13 is something like Chapter 11. It's for individuals. And Chapter 13, that's the one you're, you're going to be filing. <laughs> I mean, put it that way. Some of you will be filing for Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Uh, and what it is is that the court, uh, the bankruptcy court, will uh, adjust, make adjustments and a plan for you to pay off the debts. Uh, and this is what uh, we hope to see happen in an uh, increasing number of cases during the current crisis. So somebody has taken out a big mortgage, uh, they've taken out car loans, and uh, they were kind of profligate. And now, there's a problem, and they can't pay on all these. So they, they declare Chapter 13. They get a lawyer to represent them. And the court can adjust, um, can adjust their debts, uh, but it not to eliminate them. It says right now in federal bankruptcy law that they cannot adjust the mortgage on your house, but they can adjust other debts. And this is something that uh, we're talking about, the Congress is talking about changing, because the, the mortgage on the house is a big debt that uh, that bankruptcy ought to be able to adjust. It hasn't happened yet. I wanted to mention something else, just so you understand what bankruptcy is. There's something called informal bankruptcy. And what's the difference? With bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy is for people who have enough foresight to hire a lawyer <laughs> and go out. Uh, you're, if, you know, if, if you are having trouble paying your bills, you know enough to go and hire a lawyer. And the lawyer might demand a little money up front, you know. The lawyer has to be paid. So you should stop paying your bills and accumulate at least $1,000 so you can go to a lawyer and start Chapter 13 bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, but most, a lot of people don't have the ability to save $1,000 uh, or the, you know, the, the figure this out, and they won't call a lawyer. So what, what is the common thing? Somebody is running up too much in credit card bills, loses a job, <coughs> creditors start calling. What do you think happens? They don't get a lawyer. Guess what they do? They stop answering the phone, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Very simple. I've run up all these debts. The phone keeps ringing and these nasty people keep annoying me. So I just stopped using the phone. In fact, I let my whole phone bill lapse. I don't pay my phone bill. 
I don't even have a phone anymore, so no one can come and get. They knock on my door, and I don't answer the door. Uh, so what do courts do? That, what do uh, creditors do? In the various states, they can go to a state court and uh, appeal to the court to garnish your salary, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to show up. They go to. They find out who your employer is. They they th and then the state gives an order for the employer to take money out of your paycheck to help pay your debts. You never even figure out what happened. In fact, you might not even know it because <laughs> you don't read your pay stub, and now some of your money is going to garnishment of your salary. Uh, that's not uh, that happens, uh, but see, this is the reality of um, of, uh, of bankruptcy. Um, so we are talking about uh, another revision of the bankruptcy bill uh, because we're in a serious crisis, and maybe 2005 pulled back too much. We keep waffling about how tight we want these, but ultimately bankruptcy law is very important in risk management because this is big time risk management. Uh, and uh, it has to be adjusted to deal with moral hazard and other things. I just want to mention uh, right now there's a bill being proposed by our own Senator Chris Dodd uh, here from Connecticut and Barney Frank, uh, which is not a bankruptcy bill. Uh, it's a bill, a bailout. They don't call it a bailout bill. They say it's not a bailout, but I call it a bailout bill uh, to help people who can't pay their mortgages. And they don't have to declare bankruptcy. Uh, what they want to do is to uh, empower the Federal Housing Administration to uh, guarantee loans, er, to work out loans and guarantee them. Uh, so it's work out, and then an FHA guarantee of loans. So you don't have to declare bank. You just have to go uh, to your mortgage lender uh, and say, "I can't pay. I'd like one of these FHA workouts." And then, uh, if the, this hasn't happened yet, this is a bill. But if, if this bill passes, then they would be. The, the, they said maybe several hundred billion dollars of mortgages would be guaranteed. So here's a typical story. It might be you owe uh, three hundred thousand dollars on your house, or maybe that's too big. You owe a hundred thousand on your house. They might lower that to ninety thousand uh, and uh, give a different payment schedule, and then uh, the uh, FHA will tell the bank that if you do this, we'll, to the bank, if you make these adjustments, we will guarantee the mortgage. So this is another. Um, th that is that the federal government will pay back the mortgage if the individual doesn't. So the government is getting into risk management. They're managing the risks to the mortgage lenders. Uh, so um, in my, uh, I just mentioned one of the ideas in my book, Subprime Solution. Uh, I'm thinking that this, these things have happened in history so many times. We've had bankruptcy bills. We've had bailouts of one sort or another. Uh, they're very controversial because people say, "Look, there's a moral hazard problem. If we're bailing out homeowners who didn't pay their mortgage, isn't that a bad thing?" We're, uh, and, and and also we're doing it after the fact. Uh, nobody explained this to the borrowers that they'd be getting this bailout. So isn't it unfair to uh, maybe other people who didn't buy a house who were more you know more sensible? Uh, so what I, what I am proposing in subprime solution is that uh, we just have to, these bailouts are important and we have to make them work better. Uh, and so I have something uh, which I call a continuous workout mortgage, which we should move to. Uh, and uh, this is uh, my idea. <laughs> so I'll just mention one of the ideas in my book. The way Dodd-Frank is proposing it is that people who are in difficulty would have a single workout. It's just like a bankru bankruptcy is a single event. It occurs only once every eight years. So people who are in big trouble get, uh, get uh, help from the government. But then it's a one-time only big event, and only every eight years. So um, why don't we do it continuously? Uh, and so what we want to do is have a mortgage so the balance or the payments adjust automatically uh, for changes in home prices or incomes. Uh, and, and so uh, 
that would uh, 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 that would make it. Uh, you get a workout every month. Uh, now that sounds kind of radical and strange, but I, I don't see why we shouldn't do that, especially if we can get markets for home prices and incomes so that the um, the lenders can hedge the risk. I'm talking about private institutions offering mortgages that build in the kind of workouts that we're doing on an emergency basis from time to time. Once you recognize that workouts are needed, why don't we make it part of the structure and institution? Anyway, that's just a little story about what I'm doing in my book. I said I would uh, conclude this lecture with some thoughts, and I have, what, 15 minutes for thoughts about, uh, about finance. Um, and I wanted uh, particularly to uh, aim it at uh, people at your stage in the life cycle, young, younger uh, people, um, because, um, as I said at the beginning, there's. Uh, I think people at your age are rightly concerned about purpose in life. You are th launching out onto a whole lifetime career, and uh, at I don't know how you feel. Uh, I'm just guessing that uh, a lot of the things that you might be doing seem possibly meaningless, or, or at least not having enough meaning or purpose. Um, and I think that's a good thing to worry about. Most of the time you're taking a job, you're taking a job to, f to do some task that somebody wants done, and it may be hard to see how it figures into some global picture, but, um, but people want to do some, something that's good. I wanted to come back, first of all, to a theme that I mentioned in the, in the um, first lecture, uh, and that was, uh, I think it's a remarkable book. I, I, I'll, I'll put it on reserve. I, I, d I don't think I actually got it on reserve yet. But um, uh, Peter Unger is a philosopher, and his book is called Living High and Letting Die. Uh, that was 1996, uh, and what it, this is a book about what we do in our lives, namely that um, we tend to be wrapped up in ourselves, right? And um, there's uh, in advanced countries like the U.S., we're living pretty well, but in other places, people are starving or, uh, or or in desperate situations, and one of the moral dilemmas that we seem to face is that. Uh, you could save lives anytime you want by just giving to one of the appropriate charities. So I'll write this down again. This is on the first, I'm repeating, I said this in the first lecture, but it's worth repeating. On the first page of his book, uh, he has down an address to mail, but uh, you wouldn't mail anymore. I'll put it down again. HTTP uh, slash slash www.unicef. Dot com, uh, dot org, <laughs> sorry, org. That's uh, the United Nations Children's Fund. Support uh, slash index dot html. Uh, that's their website. And he is saying, why don't you put this book down now, right now, and send a check for a hundred dollars to UNICEF? And he estimates that. That will save 33 lives <laughs> of children in the world. The, uh, I actually got on UNICEF website this morning to check this out. They claim that they have 9.7 million, million children die every year for preventable causes, uh, for, for things that are preventable through vaccinations and uh, improved water <coughs> supply and uh, things that they do, but they don't have enough money to do. The reason why I write this down. Actually, I don't know what you would do. I, when I was reading the book, I was wondering, you know, it's, it's kind of a shock to put this down and think, I could save lives by just a check for $100? Uh, and, and I didn't do it. And so I thought, you know, that really made an impression on me because I just continued to read the book and I never. So finally, when I reread it the third time, I got on the website and I contributed $100. <laughs> so I, I, but then I, then I had this moral dilemma why did I stop at $100? Because I could go way beyond $100 uh, 
and if all these people are dying, why am I not doing that? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, you start to think of justifications and excuses that come to your mind. Uh, and so uh, maybe you don't want to read this book because he shoots them all down, <laughs> all these justifications. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the justifications is futility. You say, well, these poor people in these less developed countries, you really can't help them anyway because uh, uh, it'll all get lost or uh, uh, the population will increase and there'll be more dying people. So anyway, he dismisses that. Uh, you have to read it. Uh, maybe it's, it's a rationalization that we don't spend too much money, uh, too much time on. We don't dwell on, but we assume that it's futile and so we ignore it. Uh, another one is that it's very difficult. Uh, to be a truly moral person, I would have to give, you know, if, you know, if I really thought about what was the terrible things were happening, I would, I would have to give like 90% of my income. Uh, and that, that's so uh, difficult. I'm not going to do that. So maybe I just won't do anything. And uh, so uh, people make what he illustrates in this book is there's a lot of uh, casual thinking that we use to justify. Uh, to create an illusion of, he calls it an illusion of innocence, that we feel that we're innocent of, uh, of uh, any wrongdoing for not supporting the poor. Anyway, this, isn't, uh, this is an appeal for charity, so maybe you will donate. Or you probably, some of you have already done that. <laughs> but uh, I wanted you to put, uh, because I think you're launching out on careers, and um, there's something, uh, there seem to be moral dilemmas ab abound. I was impressed just looking at the New York Times this morning. The stories that suggested moral dilemmas for young people who are launching out on careers. Uh, one of them, I'm just—they they were reporting on the Pennsylvania primary, which incidentally you heard Hillary Clinton won, uh, 55 to 45. Um, but that's not what I was referring to. It was that they said the voters thought the most important issue is the economy, uh, the U.S. economy. And I was thinking, well, what about Iraq? And what about all the people that we are responsible? We've created we, the, situ the current situation there, and that people are dying every day there. Um, and we're concerned about the economy. Somehow, it, it seemed to be something. Um, next thing in the news this morning: Rupert Murdoch will be buying Newsday, the sixth largest regional paper in the United States, for 580 million. Somehow, you know, there's something bothersome <laughs> about that story. This guy is super rich. Uh, he's buying all the newspapers. Uh, getting uh, this is—I mean—he's a finance person, right? And he's gaining control over. People read these newspapers as part of their recreation and relaxation. And Newsday is kind of a fun paper, but it's under control of this finance <laughs> billionaire. Uh, I don't know if that's a moral issue. Next thing in the today's paper. The U.S. has 5% of the world population and 25% of its prison inmates. <laughs> so something is uh, maybe wrong here. And another thing that was in today's paper, uh, South African dock workers refused to unload a Chinese ship with uh, weapons bound for Robert Mugabe's re regime in Zimbabwe, uh, and that the Chinese ship may return to China un without delivering. Uh, this made me think. Well, who are the dock workers? This this is not this is not Rupert Murdoch. This is humble people loading the docks, and they have a union, and they said, "We're not going to do this. Uh, we're not going to support the Mugabe's uh, brutal efforts to suppress uh, a free election in his." So you start to wonder: Are finance people moral, or are they? Uh, uh, so um, I, I just give some. I think that uh, I don't know how you think, but when I was your age, I somehow wanted a perfect career that was morally right and uh, important. Uh, so who has a perfect career? I don't know. I, 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 I don't have an answer to that. I'm not going to propose an answer, but let me just consider some names that come to mind. Bill Gates. <laughs> okay. Now he is a business person who runs a tight financial ship, and you may be aware of how tight it is when you. Try to pirate one of his programs <laughs> or something, and so uh, he has a reputation for being uh, a tough guy. 
Um, on the other hand, he and Warren Buffett have set up the biggest um, transparently operated charitable foundation in the world, and it has $38.7 billion. So um, how should we view I, I wonder how Peter Unger would view Bill Gates. Uh, he does have a uh, – what did he spend on his house? $35 million on his house? He does live a high style. You know, should he have started out giving away 90% of his income when he was your age? Uh, he wouldn't be making any money if he did that, right? So I'm just thinking about uh, – I'm not saying what's right or wrong, but uh, I wanted to give one other example that comes to mind of um, – you heard of this guy? Uh, I'm trying to spell this right. Muhammad Yunus. Um, he um, – was uh, he went to um, Vanderbilt University and got a PhD in economics in uh, 1969, uh, and then he uh, became assistant professor of economics at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, it sounds like a very ordinary career so far. I mean, actually, it's good getting a PhD, but <laughs> ordinary in a way. But then he did something very important uh, in 1976. He went back to his home country, which was Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries of the world, and he founded a bank called the Grameen Bank. Um, does anyone speak Bengali here? What? What does Grameen mean? There's no Bengali here. Well, I'm told it means uh, of the village. Uh, and um, what he did is create a bank that made loans to poor people uh, called microfinance. Uh, and um, so the typical loan was made to a young woman who uh, was on a desperate poverty. And the loan would be enough to buy some small item that would start a business. For example, a push cart that could serve hot food. So she could then go and stand on a street corner and sell some kind of food. Uh, and uh, that can be a huge difference, uh, having the money to buy a food cart uh, and can make her able to support her family. Uh, but no banks would – no banks before uh, the Grameen Bank would, would, uh, would do that sort of thing. And they, they claimed that they couldn't make money doing it, but he apparently succeeded. And so he won the Nobel – actually, the Nobel Peace Prize went both to Eunice and the Grameen Bank uh, in a couple of years ago. So those are examples of people who had kind of uh, financy careers. If you looked at uh, Muhammad Eunice uh, in earlier years, it might not look like a very morally Peter Unger-type moral career. But I don't know what Peter Unger would say about Muhammad Eunice now. <laughs> he never. We don't ever have any sense that he gave away 90% of his income to poor people. But w look what he did. So uh, I don't know the answer to – I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, I don't know the answer to these moral questions, but I think that it's kind of a mistake to, um, to think that um, a career in finance is necessarily immoral. <laughs> and that if you read Peter Unger, you get the impression that just about everyone is evading the moral issues. Maybe we're incapable of really behaving the way logic, logical consideration of ethics would impel us to do. Uh, so hardly anyone is giving away 90% of, of their income. Um, so, um, uh, so I, I don't know where that leaves us exactly, but um, I, I guess uh, what I wanted to do is leave open the possibility that a career in something related to risk management can be a very meaningful uh, career path for life. Uh, and I guess it comes back to um, the feeling that uh, we live in a very risky world whose benefits are at this point shared very unequally. And uh, I think that uh, it's not the, the simple idea that you should be writing checks to UNICEF is not necessarily the final answer <laughs> about what you should be doing with your life.
And um, um, somehow, uh, what we see in these examples, I've gave both of Bill Gates and Muhammad Yunus, uh, and I'm not setting them up as necessarily examples, but uh, uh, or as uh, but it's that a career that develops some idea uh, that's well uh, motivated uh, can be uh, uh, a source of great meaning and purpose in life. Um, but what these people do is, it seems to me, is they, um, they, they develop a career with some ultimate objective. And somewhere along the career, it may seem that they're doing something uh, unimportant or uh, selfish, uh, but you have to judge it in, in the big context. So at times, I felt annoyed with Bill Gates when I had to pay for <laughs> when I bought my second laptop and I had to buy uh, Windows again. Uh, but uh, um, I think that uh, uh, what 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 we really have to do uh, is try to think of how uh, I guess one's moral imperative might be. One view is it might be that you should develop some kind of human capital and some kind of long-run plan for how you are going to apply your human capital. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean being um, uh, satisfying the demands of UNICEF along the way. We are people, and we have a certain psychology. I think we can get above our psychology to some extent uh, and one, uh, get above the drives of our psychology uh, in moments of inspiration. Uh, and I think developing a career uh, um, can, can be part of that. Uh, and anyway, I, I, uh, that was my uh, inspirational <laughs> conclusion uh, to this. Uh, and so I don't know what careers you will go into, but um, uh, in the meantime, we do have uh, two more lectures. Uh, and I doubt that Larry Summers will be giving you advice about your careers. But uh, uh, so I hope to see you again uh, on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. Okay.